mini-episode 1090 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at Sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late-night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode number 1090. This is FDH managing partner Rick Morris here today. We are welcoming back one of our favorite guests we've ever had in the history of the show. Uh, if you check her Twitter page, uh, again, it is branded uh, as well it should be number one business news anchor woman in America. Uh, we could only be speaking of the host of Countdown to the Closing Bell, Liz Clayman. And uh, we've had her on the show a couple times previously. Uh, it's interesting, as I say, mini-episode 1090. We switched to the mini-episode format in 2011, single segments at a time prior to that, uh, when we were at the uh, the late sportstalknetwork.com slash sportstalkcleveland.com. Had her on a couple times on our regular episodes, number 63 on June 24, 2009, number 84 on December 23, 2009, 103 on May 19, 2010, and number 133 on February 1st, 2011. Of course, all of those are archived at thefdhlounge.com. Wonderful, wonderful segments that we had. And again, as far as the esteem that we have for her here at this show, the only thing you need to really know about that is this. When we have very special events coming up, like uh, when we did mini-episode number 500 or 1,000, and we're putting together some best-of clips, uh, sometimes you do longer best-of shows than other times. She's one of the ones that always makes the cut. We, we've got a top tier here, and I, I won't say everybody who's on it because I don't want to make any enemies, but some of the names are obvious. Bob Barker, Steve Perry, Tommy Lasorda, uh, one of her colleagues uh, under Uncle Rupert's uh, banner, uh, Kenny Albert. So these are the ones that pretty much always make the cut whenever we are doing any kind of a best of, and uh, she is certainly on that list, and it is a pleasure to welcome her back to the show. Of course, I... Being from God's country on America's North Coast, I first saw her on TV in the early 90s on the Morning Exchange in Cleveland, which was a landmark morning show, and uh, it was one of the uh, progenerators, I believe, of uh, Good Morning America back in the 70s. So it was a great franchise she was a part of as she was working her way up to national television and subsequently has really made her bones there in the time since. Liz, thank you so much for coming back on today. It's a pleasure to have you back on. Oh my gosh, I need to send this to everybody I've ever known, Rick, that is the best intro I've ever gotten, hello, I love it, thank you so much, great to be here. Thank you, I'm, I'm pleased that it pleases you, it's a pleasure to have you back on, and uh, we are uh, we're, we're coming up on, uh, I know what will be in some ways a momentous weekend for you. Uh, with uh, Championship Sunday. That's always one of my favorite days of the year. I got to tell you, Jared Goff uh, doing your alma mater very proud. And I got to tell you, you know, on this show consistently over a period of time, even through that dreadful rookie year, I always told people, this kid is money. This kid can throw the deep ball like nobody's business. I've been on that kid from day one, Liz. I know you're very happy for his success. Oh, absolutely. But I'm even 
more happy for how well the Browns finally did this season. You know I'm a big Browns flag yep. waver, even through all of my markets. And people don't know, I'm from L.A. I'm from Los Angeles. Sure. But the minute I got to Cleveland, I just, oh my God, I just became a Browns fan, and I've never stopped, even after I left Cleveland in 1994. It's so funny, Liz, because uh, we, we just did a segment on the show uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, we try not to be self, too self-indulgent in doing segments on Cleveland sports on this show, but you know, like when LeBron was here, that was a national thing, right? The Browns because of Hard Knocks, Baker Mayfield. So we did a review yeah, of this I season. Every episode, every episode. <laughs> it was it was amazing. It really was. And I, I said to my uh, my co-host on that segment, I said, you know, Chris, I said we've been friends since 1990. I said, and that is the last season I went into with any optimism for the Browns. So before you even got to Cleveland, Liz, the year before you got to Cleveland, because 90's the year they bottomed out, and in some ways they've never recovered, this is the first time I have felt like I can't wait for next year. Everything is going our way. You and I are totally opposite. Here's why. Every year I tell my whole floor crew and staff at Fox Business Network this is, the Browns are going all the way. Browns are going all the way. And they all groan. If you watch my show at 3 p.m. Eastern yeah. every day, you uh-huh. see They all groan. I'm constantly saying, go Browns, no matter what we're talking about. I scream out, go Browns. And so I got there. It was um, Bernie Kosar. Mm-hmm. Then, meantime, Bernie leaves and goes to Dallas and takes a knee in one game and wins the Super Bowl. Right. right. So, whatever. <laughs> then, uh, Mike Tomczak, who I had a total crush on, um, didn't know I was alive. Uh, and then when I left, I just followed and I got every jersey of every quarterback each time with the hopes. That's expensive. That something could happen. Now I have a whole closet of loser jerseys. <laughs> but I don't care. I love it. And I have a Kevin Mack jersey. I mean, you name it, I've got it. Well, I'll tell you what, Liz. You know, you, you, you might have been... Uh... You know, the stopped clock, uh, but you're right twice a day here. And 2019 is the twice a day. You are right. You are absolutely correct this time around. It might have been a false alarm for the last 20-plus years, but you are absolutely right. Everything looks looks outstanding. The fact that they have a coach now that the rest of the league was copying the second half of the season with all the crazy crap that he was pulling out, that kind of tells you all you need to know. I love where they're, where they're heading right now. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. It's and, amazing. Uh, I... I went out and I got the same exact shirts that uh, Greg Williams was wearing and Hugh John. You know, I was just doing it all. Yeah. Name it, I was doing it. Well, yeah, it's a it's a fun time to be a Browns fan. Except for, like I said, I can't wait for the start of the next season. It's going to be torturous, and I haven't I haven't felt that way in a long, long time. But they are. They're looking great. I, I got to tell you, you know, for, in terms of what already has been great, but is getting a little bit kind of tumultuous right now, is the core subject matter that you are focused on every day, which is uh, the U.S. economy and uh, the, the business climate in this country. Things have been really ticking along pretty good the last two years plus, but you, you've got a real stew brewing right now. We kind of talked about this just briefly off air. You, you've got a number of different factors uh, whether it be Brexit, whether it be the the trade war with China, and you had noted earlier today on Twitter a little bit of a, a little mini rally on the thoughts that that might hopefully be coming to an end. I mean, we've been hoping this for a while, but it hasn't happened yet. You've got that. You've got the government shutdown, which just increasingly appears to be kind of uh, putting a burden on this economy. So 
you know, as as you're looking at this, I mean, do all of those seem to pose a threat to you at this point in time, some more than others? I mean, as, as you're looking at the board, basically, how do you kind of slot it out as far as the biggest risks we're facing? Well, let's triage it, and, and you, you outlined perfectly the, the three biggies, and that is, of course, uh, you're looking at the government shutdown, that's 800,000 Americans who aren't working for the moment, and uh, yes, you can go on and say, oh, they'll get paid eventually. doesn't matter. Their wallets are shut right now, so they are not spending at a time when all kinds of industry had expected, planned, um, anticipated that they would spend and buy certain products and engage in certain services and re- re- you know, certainly spend money. You then have, of course, the tariffs on China and the steel and aluminum tariffs globally. That is certainly affecting businesses who have to pay the tariffs. The, the misunderstanding a lot of people have is that it, it, they think it's China paying the tariffs. Oh, no, 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 no. It's U.S. businesses paying tariffs on Chinese goods and materials they need, use, or buy. Right. And, uh, right. So then there's that. And then, of course, a, a kind of more of a side window issue is Brexit, the um, between the UK to exit the European Union and what they're trying to do to make sure that's not too much of a chaotic transition. So I would say that right now, it's got to be China that is affecting things the most. Here's why. There isn't an assembly line or a supply chain in America now that isn't touched at some point by China, whether it's uh, rivets or parts or materials that they need from China to make their made in the USA products or who knows what they manufacture in China. So it's become an issue and I've already started to see companies. I just came from the Consumer Electronics Show, Rick, and um, GoPro, they're among the first. They've already pulled the plug. They're moving some of their U.S.-bound camera production that's on the ground in China out of China. Hmm. They won't say where they're moving it, but they're moving it. Now that costs money. Not too much, because they own their equipment, they just need a place. So they're, they're getting rid of the warehouse where they were manufacturing. But other companies aren't so lucky. They outsource their business and their, their stuff to China. And, um, you know, at some point, though, we do have to straddle this problem and face it head on, uh, the China cheats. And I respect the president for trying something new, but it's really starting, starting to hurt companies, and I'm seeing that. It really is, and it's a thing where I've considered myself for a long period of time. I, I Maybe in, way back in my youth, I might have considered myself to be sort of uh, an unrestrained free trader, but again, just as you know, just being in this part of the country and seeing what happened to the steel industry, I've sort of been more of a fair trader over a period of time, but this is a thing where the president uses the term fair trade, but it does appear in a lot of instances just to me as somebody who's kind of used the term that it, it, it almost, it, actually not, not, not necessarily almost, I would say full-blown in some of the trade areas, not necessarily with China, but it could be with China, of, of veering into protectionism, which there's always a backfire when it goes that far. Yeah, but guess what? Now, are we swinging too much to the other side? It's so fascinating to me. Republicans don't want to hear this, and Democrats don't bother, but... Nobody wants to be compared from one side to the other side, but President Trump is acting just as President Obama tried to act. When Remember Keystone and that pipeline? You know, President Obama and the Democrats tried, when it was still alive, to get a rider attached that would have approved it that simply said, okay, we'll give in, but you've got to use U.S. steel union workers and you've got to use U.S. manufactured steel. 
the Republicans refused to put it on there. Now it's President Trump who says, you've got to use U.S. steel workers and U.S. steel. He's really sounding like a less pro-free trader Democrat, which is interesting. And um, nobody wants to own that, but you've, you've got to figure that you can't just have profligate free trade. It's got, and he's right to be fair trade. But what he's doing is something that Republicans would have pushed back on, and quite frankly, he as a businessman would have pushed back on. If somebody said to him, Mr. Trump, when he was running hotels, you can only source the marble in your lobby from Indiana quarries. He'd say, look at my middle finger and read that message. Yeah. Don't tell me I can't buy Carrera marble from Italy. Are you kidding me? But he's doing that now. And he's trying to pick winners with the coal industry. And it's starting to not work. So I don't know what the answer is. But you can't, and Democrats are really guilty of doing this, they try and pick winners, but you can't. You've got to let evolution and business kind of take control. You don't You don't want profligate, uh, you know, people flouting regulation and all of that, but by the same token, if you're going to try and force General Motors to keep the Lordstown plant in Ohio open, to make what? Cars that nobody wants to buy? That's what the Chinese do, you know? That's what the Russians do. Very, very Russian to do that. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but you definitely don't want the long arm of the government telling you how to run your business. Yeah, when you're talking about central planning and that kind of stuff. But uh, I, I want to take a moment there and drill down on on something you said and how you said it, as far as pointing out uh, again in an unbiased fashion. Again, some of the differences between the last two administrations, and I think that's one of the reasons that there's such an amount of regard out there for you in this business, because this is a moment where, again, things are very, very polarized, and again, I, I happen to like uh, and, and really be a fan of some people that are on uh, certain sides of the polarization. For example, your your colleague Kennedy, uh, I, I, I kind of share her point of view on a lot of stuff. She has Thomas Massey on her show a lot. He's one of the only congressmen I like, so anybody that has Thomas Massey on their show, I'm going to be a fan of, but as, as far as your approach uh, I, I think, again, it is really, really to be commended because there are so few places that you can go these days that just kind of have it broken down for you without any kind of an agenda. And I think that trust that the viewers have in you is a big part of your success. Well, I know what I'm annoying both sides because I see it in the Twitter first and I must <laughs> be doing something right because I do call it like I see it. And what I see right now is so much hypocrisy. Oh, my God. I yep. just, it's, I, we need this country to run. Now, let me back up a bit. The world is not going here in America to, you know, hell in a handbasket. We're actually doing really, really quite well. Right. The problem becomes, are we making self-inflicted wounds with the government shutdown and then an extended trade war with China and our own friends out there? You know, um, you've got to understand that there's some great trading partners, whether it's Australia or, you know, South Korea, we, we, we've got to make it easy for them to do business with us. So I'm, I think that that is really important. Um, but when you're talking about the government shutdown, I know there are people in Ohio who are feeling it already, and it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who works for the government. There is that domino effect, Rick, and in fact, it takes you to D.C., but my husband, uh, had gone to D.C. last week, and he always goes to the same Dunkin' Donuts when he wakes up in the morning, and it's, it's right there in, in the heart of D.C., and it's supposed to open at 5 a.m. He gets there at 5.20, and it's not open. Hmm. So he waits, 
And then they opened it at 5.30, and he said, why didn't you guys open at 5? And she said, we're across the street from ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. She said, they're not working. They're furloughed, so we don't have any customers. Wow. Okay, so that started working its way through the system and soon. And I, I worry that if, if these sides can't get together on this, there's a real problem. Yeah, and it's pretty intractable right now And that uh, the national emergency quote-unquote solution at least would have given Trump a face-saving way out of the thing right now, but they seem to have put that by. I'm guessing here, when we're looking at the scenarios, I would have to think air travel is going to be a big part of of this thing. And again, it's hard to see any scenario that doesn't end in, in Trump having to surrender and make up an excuse afterwards as to how he didn't. But his hand, I think, is going to get forced. The air travel thing, the, the delays at TSA, and, and just one of the odd twists of fate here, uh, and I say this as somebody who almost every year flies in and out of Atlanta because I have close family there, the busiest airport, I believe, in the world. That's where the Super Bowl is going to be in a couple of weeks. So the, the thought of it, the lines are already getting very long at TSA there. I, I was there at just the beginning of the shutdown on Christmas Day, and things weren't uh, necessarily that bad. I understand they're getting a lot worse. Do you, do you have the sense that air travel and its role in this economy might play a big part in forcing the hand of, of both sides here? Oh, that's an interesting um, theory, and, and possibly, uh, I will say I went to Vegas for the Consumer Electronics Show a week ago, and they were, it was the first couple of days that they were working without pay, and they were there, and they were so professional and so good, and I said to one of them, how are you doing? And he said, we're hurting, but we're cute, and don't worry about anything. I don't know how long that goes on, because <laughs> at some point, people have to buy food, so... You, you already have seen in Miami um, absenteeism very close to doubling, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't blame them. They're not allowed to take second jobs. It's, it's a horrible situation right now, and I really feel for them. I really do. And at some point, air travel, you'll, what's going to happen is both sides, both Congress and the president, are going to start hearing from business, saying, we cannot conduct business under these circumstances. And it'll start showing up in GDP. In fact, it already has been anticipated that the hit to GDP per week that this goes on will be a slice off GDP of 0.13, okay, just a little over one-tenth of a percent each week that it goes on. Well, last I checked, the quarter is three months, and you're going to have zero? Now, I asked Robert Schiller, who's a Yale economist today, um, you know, I asked him this week, what do you think? And he said... It might be a little pessimistic to say 0%, but the hit to the business psychology of this country will be meaningful. And yes, I believe that will include air travel and the Super Bowl. Everybody's going to do that story, right? Yeah, yeah, you got to think so. And, you know, in in, in going back to when you've been on the show previously, pretty much uh, I think all of your previous appearances I think were in the shadow of the Great Recession because I'd say even by early 2011 we were still feeling it. It took many, many years to kind of dig out. So going back to where we were at that point in time, you know, making the comparison of some of the large multinationals uh, essentially sort of being nation states on their own, you you look at uh, the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the outsized role that it played in the Great Recession. Now, not to say that anything we're looking at here could trigger anything on that scale, but an actual nation-state, Great Britain, to circle back to Brexit for a second here, I mean, if it's the worst-case scenario, and and I hope it's not, I have a a couple of friends 
over there. And uh, even if I didn't, uh, you know, who would wish that kind of misery on a country? But uh, if, if it's as bad as it could be, and there's, let's just say there's a sudden pull out of uh, the EU and, and, and it's just no nothing in place to sort of cushion that, what could that do to the global economy? How much could we be feeling that in America if it's the worst case scenario, God forbid? Well, it'll be more psychological than actual for us, but for England, for the UK, and that includes Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. All right? There's going to be an isolated island nation. They do a huge amount of business with the European Union. They voted to get out. Great. So you're xenophobic, uh, and I'm simplifying it here. They have every right to want to pull out of a very tight relationship with a sclerotic, as Jamie Dutton of J.P. Morgan said the other day, a sclerotic European Union and the way they're doing things. But it will be disastrous for Britain. They will see borders clamped shut. It will cost them a lot more. And so I am shocked that that parliament didn't want Brexit with the deal she put forth, which I thought was pretty fair. They had this worst-case scenario that they, with her deal that they just rejected, that the European Union would hold, like, puppet strings, you know, UK. I, I don't really see it like that. Um, but I'm not British. So enough people voted that they wanted to get out. But some of that, I think, was this whipped-up frenzy against, you know, Syrian refugees, which that story's calmed down and died down a bit. But, you know, they became very anxious and nervous and did not want... Um, a lot of immigrants coming in. It was a little bit of xenophobia that drove Brexit, and I think it's been a year and a half, right, June of 2016, more than a year and a half, and now I think there are things that people have calmed down, and they're starting to look and see already that multiple international financial operations, J.P. Morgan, Goldman, they pulled out of Canary Wharf, which is the Wall Street of London. Mm-hmm. They can't be there anymore because they, the, the European Union rules require that if they don't, you know, adhere to the EU rules, then if Britain doesn't, then they can't what's called, you know, clear trade. Mm-hmm. So they moved to Singapore. They moved to Frankfurt. They moved to Geneva. Why? Those are empty buildings. Those are people, janitors, uh, the, the whole infrastructure around there who aren't working there anymore. Forget the bankers who spent a lot of money in London. So, yeah, part of me says, all right, you guys want Brexit that badly? Fine, take it and see what happens. Now, some of this could be scare tactics of well, the chaos, but when J.D. Morgan and Jamie Dimon say it, that's not governments, that's not politicians. That's a smart guy who does international business who spent $100 million preparing for the worst yeah, and that's uh, that really tells you something when a company is putting that uh, degree of resources in, what their level yeah. of fear is. Yeah, how palpable it is, and uh, you know, God forbid, you know, hopefully it does not uh, come to that. But uh, as you're referencing there, in conversations with, with folks like Jamie Dimon and some of the other big interviews you've done over a period of time, I remember during your previous uh, t- times on the show, uh, talking about the trajectory of your career and that uh, you hadn't started out in your journalism career from day one as a financial journalist. It was something that you got into uh, subsequently and had to kind of make your bones at it. And uh, I'm wondering, as you've been tracing through and, and getting to this trajectory now of, uh, again, what we will co-sign as being the uh, the number one business news anchorwoman in America, but, uh, you know, along the way there, I, I'm, I'm wondering in your mind, in terms of 
that goal that you had of reaching the point when you get into a, 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 the, the industry of being seen as somebody with this type of gravitas, was it some of the big interviews like that one that you've done over a period of time? Was it, I know you've done an awful lot of emceeing at some of these big events and, and conducting panels, and obviously there's a lot of respect that goes along with that. Is it sort of a composite of things along the way? At, at what point were you doing something where you kind of realized, you know, I, I've, I've made my goal of, of being seen as how I want to be seen in this industry as, as being that kind of a presence? Well, you, you know, you just distilled it really well. Uh, I would have to say it is a mosaic of 30 years of broadcasting. I started as an overnight production assistant at Channel 2 News in Los Angeles, where I would go to a, a newsstand. This was pre-computers. Go to a newsstand on Hollywood and Vine. Not a good area back then. Right. And a form of, and I'd load up about 600 newspapers, and I'd deliver them through the building at CBS News. And then I would answer the phones, and then I'd get egg muffins for the news director, and then I'd drive reporters around or help them get research. And the reporters at the time were Paula Zahn, uh, Pat O'Brien, Jim Lampley, Ann Curry. They were all local newsmen, and I would pick their brains. And, and one of the things I did was pick the ones I respected and then look and see what they did. And there was an integrity about them where, I mean, just look at Ann Curry, right? Sure. She made she made it as a kid from Portland all the way to the Today Show, and she said, "Liz, pick your pick your ethics, pick your morals, pick your values, and then use your personality and study up and be smart and forge ahead one foot in front of the other and never say die and you'll get there." And Paul Zahn said the same thing. I owe Pat O'Brien and Jim Lampley a lot. Those guys in sports, they were so supportive. And I, I just, there are people all along the way, but when I first got my first on-air job, which was in Columbus, Ohio, at Channel 6, WSYX, a guy named Ron Bielek hired me, and Carol Costello was there. And we, we both kind of found our way together. And Dana, you know, uh, all these people. It was like, uh, incredible. Faith Hill had already been, or Faith Daniels, rather, I'm sorry. Faith Daniels had been there and left, and she moved into the network. And I looked at all of these people, and I thought, let me just pick choose the good parts and then put my imprimatur of my personality in. But it was a big difference after Cleveland when I got to Boston and then to CNBC, which recruited me, where I had to suddenly become an expert in something about which I knew very little. My dad was a surgeon. My mom's a Shakespearean trained theater actress. A stock market? What the hell is that? You know, I didn't even know. So I started studying. I did the Liz Klingon School of Business. I read every book I could. I over-prepared. I never, ever wing it to this day. And I always go in there thinking, you're lucky you're here. Don't lose that position. And I'll tell you, though, I owe Fox so much because when Fox recruited me, I was leaving business news. I was going to go to headline news and do a pop culture show. I was finished with business news. And they said, no, you're not. No, you're not. I said, yes, I am. I, I don't want to do it anymore. And they said, no, you're being used incorrectly at CNBC. We want to take your leash off and let you and your personality run free. You're so good and you're so compelling. And I thought, oh my God, these are the first people who ever said that, who just said, be you. Well, Ron Bielek, who hired me in Columbus, also said that. But And Ted Henry, Wilma Smith, they were all such pros. But when you get to the network, you're trying so hard to be professional. Fox said, we're in it to win. It doesn't matter that we're the, the baby on the block. They're going to try and kill us. And we're not giving up ever. And it was 
that moment in 2007 where I thought to myself, I've got to work with these people. This is interesting. Now, uh, did that make my family ever happy? They were like, when are you coming back to California? And on top of it, we're not really the Fox Newsy types, right? You know, I went to Berkeley, I hugged trees, and, sure. and there's this impression about Fox. And once you get in there, you realize, oh, it's not really like that. You can, they'll never tell you what to say or how to say it, ever. I have never been told, Liz, don't, don't bring that up, or wait a minute, you, you said something negative about Republican. It's not like that. We call it like we see it. I certainly speak for myself. So I got there, and I was like, yay, and then the fight began, and it was not easy. CNBC tried to crush us. They threatened CEOs, if you go on Fox Business, we'll never put you on ever again. Um, you know, some people were saying, oh, I can't, or I don't want to annoy CNBC, they're the world leader, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, are you kidding me? You're going to let a television network tell you how and where to get your, your investor shareholder message out? I'd be embarrassed if I were you. You know, we, we have to learn how to fight that narrative. And then we realized, forget it. Let's just do business news for everybody versus that narrow trading audience. Absolutely. And we started doing that. And, but you know what? It still wasn't working. But we just kept doing it, and we just kept being different and interesting and just more fun. And in the end, eight years in, signs of life. So I am living proof to people, never stay, die. And now, for me, having not come from a business background, it just, it thrills me and annoys competitors. But to, it's so honorable at my age. I, you know, I, I'm 55, okay? I have worked so hard for this. And here I am, the number one female business news anchor in America. Yep. I, I can't tell you how terrifying that is. But you don't say, I won. Say, I'm winning. Sure. Because it is a work in constant progress. That's right. That's right, and, and I, I will say, too, uh, that is a, a truly incredible answer you just gave. And, uh, again, it's hard to believe that there could be uh, any programmers out there at any level that, that wouldn't have had the foresight. It's, it seems a very basic thing to say, if you have Liz Clayman for, working for you, let Liz Clayman be Liz Clayman. But apparently that wasn't so obvious to your previous places of employment. You know. No, yeah, and people, people used to say, uh, especially when I left for Fox Business, why are you going there? Interestingly, when I left Boston and NBC in Boston, they said, where are you going to NBC? What is it? That's like for weirdos who will look at the stock market because it was 1998 and the dot-com bubble hadn't started and people were just starting to trade their own stocks. But that's kind of the way I roll. You know, opportunities will slide past you in packages you don't recognize. Grab them. And you, you talked about, was it the interviews you did? Well, I landed Buffett when I was at CNBC, Warren Buffett, and it was the first long-form sit-down live interview he ever did. Um, he was not into talking to the media, but instead of trying to be all business news, I was just real with him. And I said, yeah, let me come to, let me come to the Browns gun. You tell me how you value a business. And uh, it, he at first, maybe jump through hoops. Why? What would I? You know, why? Why you? You know, and he happened to have been a fan at the time and watched me. But he's no pushover, and uh, I talked my way in there, and uh, that really put me on the map in many regards. And then I went 
Bill Gates, and then I've landed world leaders, and the list goes on. I've interviewed every Treasury Secretary since, you know, Larry Summer. I mean, this goes, Larry Summers, it goes way back, you know, all of the Bush administration guys, you know, Obama's Treasury Secretaries, and it's not easy to get access to these people, but one thing I never let go of was I've never burned a source. I've, I've always maintained my, my hope, ethics, and credibility, and I will never get political and pick sides simply because that's what I think people want to hear. Yeah, and you're very good at uh, sticking to the way you, you like to do it. And uh, to bring this thing all the way back around uh, to my introduction of you, uh, again, when, when I talk about why as a programmer, I can't understand why anybody wouldn't just say, let Liz Clayman be Liz Clayman. I'm going to circle back around to something you said one of your previous times on the show. Uh, I think it was probably your first time because we were talking about your move to Fox Business. Uh, and, and you probably don't even remember having said this, but it was awesome. Uh, you were saying that uh, it was by no means certain that you were going to stay in financial news. You were weighing your options, and you very memorably said, uh, who knows, I might go become the first Jew on Al Jazeera. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know, a Jewish girl on Al Jazeera, can you imagine? But I was ready to do it. And my, my 14-year-old son said to me the other day, he said, Mom, could you go work at the NFL Network? He said, I really want you to go work on Good Morning Football. And... All of a sudden, you know, I've been in Fox Business for <laughs> 11 years. I love my job. I'm staying. Don't worry. I just re-signed my contract. Um, and I, I just adore 11 years in walking in this door every day. But when he planted that, I thought, hey, if, if suddenly I didn't have a job, I'd be banging on their door and figuring out how to get up to speed on knowing about Terry Bradshaw and Steve DeBerg and, and Lou Vitoke Rosa and all the old guys trying to get up to speed on all the trivia but I've done it once before. Yeah. I did it for business. I've done it for the stock market. And um, it's okay to change streams mid-course. It is. It really is. And I will I will tell you this uh, as I bring it all the way around, that uh, just in talking to uh, friends and family around town here, again, y- yours is a name that still resonates around here. I tell people, hey, we're having Liz Kleeman on the show. I remember her from the morning exchange. Like, everybody still remembers you here, Liz. So you've you really left oh, an impression that means here. so much to me. My, my heart lies with Fred Griffith and the whole team and Jenny Kraft and Deacon and all those people. They, they taught me, you know, you talk about personality and show it, Ted Henry, Wilma Smith, Don Webster, and Nev Chandler. May he rest in peace. Yes. They, they are the best in local news. They were the team. I can't even tell you what I learned from them, how to just be natural and true. And the fact is, and you are spot on, the morning exchange predated Good Morning America. Good yes. Morning America, you know, was morning exchange that was the format upon which Good Morning America launched nationally. And um, I won an Emmy for my role on morning exchange as the anchor. And people always say, one day... National Morning Show, you know, and I did that. I did that at CNBC, but who knows what's in the books for me? I, I hope that women, especially of, of my age now, are, are valued as much as men who are a lot older, you know, and that there there are brand new chapters ahead of me. But I can tell you um, the best experiences of my life professionally were in Ohio and here at Fox Business Network. It's just, it's learn from each place and there is no such thing as a failed move as long as you're moving as long as you're learning amen and i've seen you do great work at both places and i i'm so glad you uh you mentioned 
because it's a name that's not known nationally like it should be. Uh, the name of Nev Chandler, our legendary uh, anchorman in town here, Browns announcer all those years, a uh, good friend of mine, a contributor to the show, Ron Glasnap, who's a producer in town here. He had been produced for Nev Chandler just briefly and had the privilege of getting to work for the man. And I really envy that uh, because just just to have the impact on his life that uh, that Nev did. Uh, what a very special individual. But, uh, again, speaking of uh, special individuals, uh, Liz, it is always a true pleasure to have you on the show here for your fifth appearance. And, uh, as I say, this is something that uh, we, we always really look forward to and enjoy. And, somehow, it always exceeds the bar of expectations as it did this time. Thank you so much, and I look forward to time number six, whenever that may be. Rick, you're a real pro, and I so appreciate it, and I hope your listeners appreciate you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Oh, thank you, Liz. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate having you here, and I appreciate everybody tuning in today. Thank you for FDH Lounge Mini episode number 1090. As we bring the show to a close, we would like to extend our deepest gratitude to NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, All Clear Channel affiliates, TNT, TBS, USA, UPN, Deadspin.com, YouTube.com, YTMND.com, MySpace.com, various blogs, Fox News, CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, IAmBoard.com, Billboard.com, Google.com, ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN News, ESPN Classic, NBA TV, NFL Network, Sports Time Ohio, Athlon Magazine, Comedy Central, Cartoon Network, The Boomerang Channel, QVC, BET, The Spice Channel, Steno Notebooks, Manwich, Papermate Office Supplies, Waitresses, Strippers, Bartenders, Garbage Men, Janitors, Microwave Popcorn, The Writers of The Office, Scrubs, Entourage, My Name is Earl, Oz, Metalocalypse and the Boondocks, Aquafina, and The Periodic Table of elements. 